I'm going to be talking about monetary incentives for refugee repatriation. Another title is just paying refugees to leave. And there's four different cases I wanted to present where countries have policies of providing cash grants to individuals who consent to exit the territory of the state and often are unable to re-enter the state. They don't have residency cards. They don't have citizenship. So Sweden introduced a policy like this in 2007 to individuals who were consenting to return to Afghanistan. Soon after, the United Kingdom introduced payment schemes. Australia introduced a policy where Tony Abbott basically said, anyone who's agreeing to return to any country of origin can receive $10,000 each. And more recently, Israel has provided funds to anyone returning to a number of East African countries. And we look at these four cases, and in some ways they're very similar, and in some ways they're very different. So you look at the case of Australia and Israel, these are countries where a high proportion of the individuals returning are returning from detention. So the return is very involuntary. So you have a member of the civil service knocking on the door of somebody sitting in their detention cell, and they're told, if you agree to return next week or next month, we'll give you cash and envelope at the airport, and we'll give it to you after you boarded the flight to make sure that you really do leave the country. In contrast, in Sweden, the United Kingdom, they also provide funds to individuals in detention. The large proportion of the refugees have residency status. They're returning relatively voluntarily, and it's less coerced compared to the cases of Australia and Israel. There's another way you can divide these four cases up. So in the UK and Israel, the state isn't the only actor providing money to return. You have private non-governmental organizations often humanitarian organizations, that are providing cash grants to refugees who agree to return to their country of origin. The idea behind these cash grants is that it assists individuals reintegrate after they've returned if this is what they wish to do. In Sweden and Australia, the money tends to be directly from the government. It's actually another example that I didn't put up here, but the British National Party in 2010 said if it was elected, it would provide $78,000 to each migrant who agreed to repatriate. So there's a correlation in general, based not only on these cases, but other ones as well, between how much a country wants to decrease the number of refugees in the country, how much money they're willing to give a refugee. This creates an ethical dilemma, and it creates two dilemmas I want to focus on. One is an ethical dilemma found in the case of Sweden. So if a refugee is completely voluntarily agreeing to repatriate, is it okay to provide them a large amount of money to encourage them to do so? And the question is whether the state is acting unethically by providing these payments. The second <coughs> ethical dilemma arose in the case of Israel. So assuming, and I do, that the state of Israel's policy towards refugees is unquestionably unjust, so asylum seekers don't have the access to a refugee status determination policy in Israel, genuine refugees are detained, they don't have a choice. We agree that the state policy is unethical. Should NGOs provide funds to these refugees in detention, or shouldn't they? So I'm going to first address the first ethical dilemma when it comes to state actions, and then I'll address the second ethical dilemma, which is regarding NGO actions, so third parties and what they should do. So here's the state dilemma. So you could say it's wrong because it motivates extremely high-risk returns in a range of cases. You could also say that 
it is a voluntary transaction. So it does motivate people to take risks, but if people are voluntarily choosing to do so, that can be justified. It doesn't forcibly exclude anyone, so you can still stay in the country if you want, you can turn down the offer, and it enhances freedom of movement. So it gives people money to travel back to their country of origin, it gives them funds for onward migration after they've gone back, it gives them investment seeds to be able to start businesses, and a minority will probably end up succeeding in starting these businesses in a lot of these cases, but some will, and maybe you should have the option and the voluntary choice to be able to do so. So this is the basic structure of the dilemma, and how do we resolve this? So you could argue that this doesn't fact exclude refugees in a very important way. So if a refugee is visited in their store shop by a civil servant, in a lot of countries there's an active effort to engage refugees to tell them about this monetary offer. So if a refugee is approached by a civil servant and told, here's money for you to repatriate your country of origin if you want to, the very offer itself excludes the refugee in a very important way. So there's a certain message inferred from that offer, and the message is, we don't want your presence so much that we're willing to pay you a large amount of money to be able to encourage you to leave. Which is why the British National Party was willing to pay $78,000 to encourage people to go back. So the larger the grant, the more it might help a refugee, but the larger the grant, the stronger the message that the country is willing to invest extraordinary resources in order to encourage them to leave. And that message itself can be extremely exclusionary, even if it's rejected, and even if they stay in the country. But you could say that some refugees will reject the offer. And the minute they reject the offer, they'll send an important counter message to the government, which is we want to stay here so much that we're willing to sacrifice extraordinary resources in order to stay members of this political community. So you could argue that yes, the offer is exclusionary, but it creates a moment in time when a refugee can give that counter message. So even if we think that the payments are unethical, we shouldn't try to fight them in the government. We should just allow the government to do what it's doing and allow refugees to respond how they feel is the right way to respond. But I think there's another reason why these payments might be unethical. And that has to do with the fact that they're a type of contract. So the government is telling refugees within the population, we're willing to pay you money if you agree to leave. And the refugee is saying, I'm willing to leave if you give me money. And there's some contracts that we might think that individuals shouldn't be able to engage in, even if they're completely voluntary. So in contract law, you have something called unconscionable contracts. And these are contracts that nobody is allowed to enter into. And if they do try to enter into them, no judge will uphold. So if I want to borrow money from you, and I say, if you give me the money and I fail to pay it back, I'll give them my left hand. No judge will uphold that contract. And there's three reasons why philosophers say that they shouldn't be upholding these contracts. One is it's wrong to force the public to pay into a tax system that upholds these contracts. So if you want to independently enter a contract by yourself, fine. But the state shouldn't be sponsoring these kind of agreements and encouraging them. And another important reason is that even if you voluntarily consent at one point in time to do something, your future self hasn't really consented. So if I accept a loan and then have to give my left hand later on, my future self is forced to accept my past self's decision. And there's a limit to how much we should be able to limit our future self's decision. And we can make a similar claim about payments to encourage refugees to go back to their countries of origin. We might say a refugee does have the right to be able to make a decision for their future selves to an extent, but there's a limit to how much the state should be encouraging such agreements. So if a refugee is agreeing to take the money, goes back to their country of origin, so if a refugee is in Australia and consents to go back to Afghanistan, and then can't re-enter Australia as a result of having accepted the money earlier, 
then the state is enforcing a contract that no one should have to enter or be forced to enter later on. So that's one reason why I think states shouldn't be able to give these particular funds to encourage exit. This brings me to the second dilemma. And to explain the second dilemma, it's forced. I'll start off with a, a brief example of a woman I met uh, during field work in South Sudan. Pumela was born in Egypt. Her parents had fled South Sudan during the Second Sudanese Civil War. In Egypt, she became pregnant as a teenager. And when the child was five years old, she decided she couldn't stay in Egypt anymore because she faced widespread xenophobic attacks from strangers on the street and from her employers, and the police wouldn't protect her. She was afraid, so she decided to pay smugglers to take her across the Egyptian Sinai into Israel. When she reached Israel, she received residency status. For a number of years, she worked at a hotel. She <coughs> saved up some money, but not a lot. And in 2012, she was told she had a choice. She could either stay in Israel and face indefinite detention and possible deportation, or she could accept funds from an NGO to return to her country of origin. She wasn't sure what to do until she was told that she could receive this money. She thought it was worth it. The reason she thought it was worth it was because it's better to go back with money than to stay in indefinite detention. And if there was a chance she was going to be deported in the future, then she wouldn't have access to those funds during the deportation stage. After she went back, two years after her arrival, the South Sudanese Civil War broke out. Her daughter fled to Uganda, and she's unable to ensure that her daughter and herself has food security and access to education. So my question is whether the NGO should have provided this money to Pamela to help her go back to South Sudan. So you, should, you could say that no, they shouldn't have had for these reasons. The payments were involuntary, she was accepting them in detention, and return was extremely unsafe. And based on my other data that I've gathered in South Sudan and other countries of origin, <coughs> as a comparative metric, South Sudan was very unsafe. So of the 134 individuals I interviewed who had returned from Israel with payments, a significant percentage were later displaced Five were killed from ethnic-based violence, three children died from malaria, and 62 individuals lacked food security and health care. So it was unsafe for Pamela to return should the money have been offered to her, given its involuntary nature. So you could argue, yes, involuntary consent can be valid. So if a refugee is fleeing their country of origin, not returning, and an NGO says, I'll help give you a bus ticket to be able to cross the border from South Sudan to Uganda, of course the refugee isn't voluntarily consenting to take this bus ticket. They're forced to leave. But we would say that their consent is valid. So we could similarly claim that Pumela did give involuntary consent, but it was still valid consent. Another reason is that money helps. Money helped Pumela. She wouldn't have otherwise received it. It helped enhance her freedom of movement, in a sense, because it helped her return to her country with more resources than she otherwise would have. And deportation was a possibility. And if it was possible, we might say that NGOs should provide money to encourage individuals to acquiesce to return. If Pumela wasn't going to return, but would accept going into detention, she might have woken up one day to have guards pounding on her cell door, forcing her into a van against her will, driving her to the airport, and immediately deboarding her without any preparatory time. And we might think that's a worse outcome than her simply acquiescing to return in a less violent manner. So this is the kind of justifications that I was given by NGOs, or different versions of these justifications. And I think there's a reason not to help a refugee return from detention in order to discourage them from accepting a future deportation. So I spoke to some refugees who oppose these NGO payment schemes in Israel. 
And these refugees were extremely active in protesting unjust Israeli government policy. So they would organize marches through the desert, they would organize hunger strikes, they would speak to the media and explain specifically why they had left Eritrea or Sudan or other countries of origin. And the minute that an NGO came and said, we'll give you money to go back to your country of origin, a significant number of people who would have stayed in the country and continued to protest decided it was worth it to go back. These refugees who were protesting also said, everyone should have the right to go back. No one should be blocked from repatriating. But they opposed the idea of NGOs providing money because they thought it encouraged people to return who otherwise wouldn't have. There might be a certain principle that we might want to follow against encouraging people to acquiesce to unjust threats. So here's an example of what we would think intuitively is clearly wrong. Imagine if NGOs went to 1920s India, they went back in time somehow, and they, pray, they paid protesters not to show up to a protest against British colonial rule. And the reason they would pay these protesters is because it's very dangerous to go to a protest in 1920s against British rule. Most of us would think that was a bad idea. There's a reason to give the money, and that's it saves you from the bullets of the British soldiers. But a good reason not to give the money is that it undermines the protest and it undermines long-term policy change. Imagine similarly if NGOs paid civil rights, rights protesters in 1960s uh, Jim Crow South to leave Alabama the day of the protest. There's a reason to pay them to not be there, which is that it saves them from the police's tear gas and the German shepherds and the batons and guns. But a good reason not to pay individuals is that they already have the option of not going to the protest anyways. If they're going to the protest, there might be something unethical about paying them to not show up. And we might see something similar about NGOs that assist refugees return from detention. <coughs> it encourages refugees to accept a less violent and threatening return, but if they already have the option anyways, there might be a reason not to encourage them to accept it. I don't think this is a decisive reason. I think very vulnerable refugees might have a right to these payments, especially if they're going to return anyways. I think it's something to keep in mind when NGOs are making a final decision about whether to act in these particular cases. So to summarize, there's two large conclusions we can reach. States shouldn't be motivating individuals to return with payments because this amounts to a type of self-harming contract and also excludes individuals in an important way. And when states detain refugees and act unethical towards them, one reason for NGOs to avoid giving payments is that it encourages individuals to return who otherwise wouldn't have, and this might undermine resistance and policy change in the long run. Thank you very much, Molly. Very interesting. Um